Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. So IXL Learning is a multi-subject online program for kids, and it's used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. 14 million students use it. And if you have kids who are trying to get ahead or if they're struggling with certain subjects or studying for a test that's coming up, IXL is this personalized learning tool that you can use to help kids learn what they need to learn faster. And they have programs K through 12, so there's something for every level. And some of my nieces and nephews have been homeschooled, and so my family has used tools like this to supplement curriculum or to brush up or to sharpen skills. IXL Learning has won tons of awards, and so many students have benefited from it. So make an impact on your child's learning, get IXL now. And Ologies listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash Ologies. So visit IXL.com slash Ologies to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Oh, hey, it's that sticky quarter hiding under your floor mat just waiting for you to get desperate enough to use it at a parking meter. Allie Ward, back with... A corona sode. This is the third installment of coronavirus episodes. Uh, the first one was with virologist Dr. Shannon Bennett from Cal Academy. And then we had an isolation era, March 31st episode called All Washed Hands on Deck with Dr. Michael Wells about testing resources, what we can all do to help, and also how to practice self-care during a really tough time. So it's been two months And things are starting to slowly reopen in the U.S., and we all have a lot of questions. So I hopped on the horn with past guest, Dr. Mike Natter. He is a physician in New York City who you know from the diabetology episodes. He has been on the front lines in emergency and ICU units and gives us an account of the disease, prognoses, what to expect next. I also chatted with Dr. Shannon Bennett, a virologist extraordinaire, to talk about how the virus behaves and how we should behave, because that's a big part of it. But before we get to them, quickly, just a few thanks to everyone on patreon.com slash ologies for submitting questions for this episode. This is all your questions and for supporting for as little as a buck a month. Thank you to everyone sending these episodes around via word of mouth and social media and subscribing and rating and of course, reviewing Your reviews have kept me company during a lonely time. And as proof, I read a fresh one that someone left each week. This one is from History Kid, who says that this podcast makes learning about topics I've never even heard of so interesting and enjoyable. I have to confess, her intro and the show's theme music always make this 55-year-old man cry with joyful anticipation. Thank you, History Kid, for letting me creep your weeps. And everyone who left reviews this week for serious. Okay. Let's get to the interviews with doctors Natter and Bennett. You'll learn about herd immunity and vaccine progress, what it's been like on the front lines, if the virus will mutate, if it's seasonal, what PPE we should be wearing, if picnics in the park are a good idea, and when you can hug people again. Are handshakes canceled? You will find out. It starts off tough explaining the importance of having flattened the curve, and by the end, you will have a clearer picture of the future. 
So get comfy and listen up and then bang on a saucepan and applaud into the dusk for physician Dr. Mike Natter and virologist Dr. Shannon Bennett. to not cry in the 30-minute chat that we have. <laughs> Please don't feel like you have to stick to that. <laughs> Can I tell you, I've, I've been ugly crying. Like, mm. I feel like what I imagine a very, very pregnant woman oh. with, like, lots of hormones flowing through her. So, you heard Dr. Mike Natter in the diabetology episode, and you may recall that he is a super sweet super empathetic dude and he works in a family of three hospitals in manhattan and he has seen things not on the news not explained via press conference but firsthand so he knows the real shit can you explain to me a little bit of what it's been like since early march yeah mid late march yeah it was a lot there's a lot of volume we had to basically kind of um just to give you some scale just to like and, and it's always tough because like when you're in the hospital, like you see the trees, you don't see the forest. So mm-hmm. you don't necessarily know what everyone else's experience is. So I can really only speak to that. I was seeing a lot of trees, a lot more trees than mm-hmm. is typical for this patch of forest. So just to give you some scale, the hospital and internal medicine works like this. If you come to the emergency room, they try and uh, get you better so that you don't have to be admitted. If you are sick enough to need admission, which uh, unfortunately many of the folks that have like really bad COVID um, do need because their oxygenation is so low. Mm-hmm. Um, if they are sick but not too sick, they go to what's called the general floor. We call it the floor or like some people call it the ward, the, the mm-hmm. wards. Okay. The general medicine floor is kind of like you're sick enough to be admitted, but you're not uh, on death's door by any means. And then if you get sicker, then you go to what we call the unit, which is short for the ICU. Mm. There's different flavors of ICU, but in general, they're just all um, acute critical care. On average, there will be um, in one ICU, let's say there's maybe 30, 40 beds. There will be maybe uh, on my particular team, 10 to 20 patients of which maybe five to seven of them are intubated and very, very, very sick. Um, the entire ICU plus a million other floors that we had to kind of make shift into ICUs were being overrun with mm. patients. There was hundreds, literally oh at, my God. At, at the peak at this particular hospital, I think close to 200, um, intubated, ventilated, <sighs> ventilator, um, you know, necessitating patients. And it was really, really, really bad. Um, so that was bad. And that was at one particular hospital. And then I went to, I rotate between another one and the other hospital up the street, which has a lot more resources, uh, was even more overrun than that hospital. But we have people from surgery, from plastic surgery, from pediatrics, from psychiatry, from neurology, who we just needed to kind of help us essentially with the volume. And so it was like an onslaught of volume of patients. What was life like in New York at that time? Because you're you're born in New York, you've lived your most of your life in New York. What's it like going from the hospitals back home every day, knowing that that's kind of an epicenter in America? It's uh, scary. I mean, I think you know New Yorkers are, are pretty rough and mm-hmm. gritty, and nothing really affects anyone. And everyone kind of, no matter what's going on in the world, everyone seems to kind of be able to do their thing, no matter what. 
And there was this clear sense of kind of unity and camaraderie. You know, the only other time that I've lived through that felt even remotely close, but for very different reasons, I think was 9-11 and to some degree a little bit post uh, Superstorm Sandy. But it just was different. Like, it's a very different vibe. It's so eerie and very uncomfortable and jarring for me um, to see the streets as empty as they are, because that's something that's like a, a constant of New York. Like the lights are on, people mm-hmm. are moving around, things are going on, no matter how crazy the world gets. And the fact that that's not the case was also, I think, extremely um, noticeable and jarring. Mm-hmm. How are doctors looking at the curve for New York? Where is it at now? We're in that beginning of May. How's it looking? It's looking a lot better. I mean, it's all what I would say is um, thanks to, you know, good leadership from Cuomo and and to some degree de Blasio, because um, it's the idea of shutting things down uh, to limit the spread. And we are seeing a massive flattening of the curve for that reason. Um, Mm -hmm. Hospital admission rates are significantly down. Um, Death rates are coming down each day. Um, there still are packed ICUs and there's still lots and lots of very, very sick, sick patients. Um, but we're able to manage them because the volumes have started to settle down. It's almost indefinitely thanks to the social distancing and the lockdown and the kind of shelter in place orders that have been, uh, issued by the governor. So a few patrons had questions about symptoms of COVID-19. COVID-19 is the disease caused by SARS-CoV-2, which is a new type of coronavirus Coronaviruses are a type of virus named for the crown or corona of structures on its cell surface that help it bust into our cells. So a recent Center for Evidence-Based Medicine article stated that between 5 and 80% of people testing positive for COVID-19 may be asymptomatic. Between 5 and 80%. What? That's a big range. So we don't totally know how many people have it, but experts pretty much settled on 50% are asymptomatic. Patron Lisa Moore asked about neurological symptoms, and in one small Chinese study of 214 people hospitalized with COVID-19, more than a third of them had neurological symptoms like headaches and changes in smell and taste, nerve pain, tingling in the extremities and kind of wooziness and dizziness. And other observed neurological effects of COVID-19 are short-term memory loss, difficulty concentrating, tremor, so it can affect you neurologically. Patron Toby Krisnick asked, if there's going to be a second wave, will there be new and unknown symptoms? They say, I'm already hearing about corona toes. So yes, other observed symptoms of this coronavirus have been Corona toes, which are lesions on the toes, diarrhea, and perhaps even something called Kawasaki disease, which has been seen in some children. It presents a little like toxic shock syndrome with a high fever lasting several days, an abdominal pain, vomiting, a bright red or what's called a strawberry tongue, and peeling rashes on the feet and hands and groin. Other complications of COVID-19 we did not necessarily know much about a few months ago are blood clots and stroke, inflamed heart tissue, lung scarring, and even issues with male fertility. I know you're like, what the fuck are all these symptoms? Why are you bumming me out, dad? Well, there's a chance that you or someone you love might have symptoms without realizing it is the Rona. So I'm here to tell you. Now, the tough part is that this is a novel virus. We've only known about it a few months. So every day we get more information. So every day, yesterday's information might be a little more wrong. But the good news is that people are working around the clock on it. Dr. Natter explains. That's a good question. I mean, I think 
I think just speaking generally, a lot of the fear around this is that we don't know things. Yeah. Uh, we don't understand why some people who get coronavirus have a sniffle and then they get better or they have a few fevers and they get better. And then the same individual with who's, I mean, I saw very young patients with no comorbid or, um, you know, past medical history who have died. Um, and many others who are on dialysis and ECMO machines and hemodialysis and, and, and ventilators and all these things that sh doesn't make sense. Um, and so that fear is felt um, really amongst the, the, pop the general population, but amongst healthcare workers. I think we like to intellectualize as a defense mechanism, but you can't intellectualize when you don't know and when you see what you're seeing. So worldwide, as of this recording, 285,971 people are reported casualties of the virus, over 80,000 in the U.S. alone. So how is it still spreading? Any surprises? Virologist at the California Academy of Sciences, Dr. Shannon Bennett, explains. Well, it's really fascinating. I would say that it's definitely, by and large, behaving mm. as we would have expected. The, the kind of the way which was this sort of deep exponential growth rate early on that end flattening uh, and leveling off. And I'm talking about um, leveling off in terms of the number of daily new cases and the number of daily new deaths. In both cases, the one, the deaths legs behind the new cases, but they start to ramp up, then they level off such that the number of daily new cases is almost the same day over day, maybe over a sliding two week, a two week window. And then it starts to drop down the other side of the wave. So here in California, we're a big surfing culture. So it's just like <laughs> surfing a wave. <laughs> you know, you go up, flatten, and then down the other side. I, and I do apologize making light of this. This is very serious. But it, it is an effective analogy, I think, to indicate that that just like a, a, a an energetic wave in water, mm -hmm. then the number of cases out there, because any individual case is infecting a certain number of other individual cases, um, and that number is, you know, can be pretty high. At the beginning of the epidemic, the doubling time was on the order of a few mm. days, and then it sort of spread out as we flattened the curve. And so that metric represents the energy of the virus to push out and push through a population just the way that the, uh, the energy in, in a wave that we surf behaves. And so the energy of that um, force of infection is becoming dampened as the number of daily new cases starts to level off. And then that gets reflected in the reduction in the number of daily new cases day over day until it's close to zero. And that's the bleeding out of the energy mm -hmm. of that wave, as well as that force of infection. And so that's the way it's rolled in most countries, including our country here in the U.S. Uh, state by state, maybe the intensity, the, the height of the peak of the wave might be a little different. It was certainly the highest in New York. Um, and the timing of that wave is jittered. So some states hit their exponential growth sooner. Uh, others have hit it later and to a much lesser extent. And what's interesting to me is looking at different states or even different countries Although the form of the wave largely plays out mm -hmm. uh, the same, with some exceptions, we can really see how countries and states uh, have implemented different uh, policies, and that kind of plays out in in on the epidemiologic landscape. Like you can really see the difference. You can see how uh, 
different states, for example, really managed to keep that curve very low, very flat, a delayed its start, and in very quick time have seen it decrease. So you're seeing policies have like a direct mathematical effect on that curve? Yes, most definitely. Patron Joanna Gebhard asked, do we know what the mortality rate is yet? And I awkwardly asked Dr. Natter. How much higher were the mortality rates of your patients than you're used to dealing with? And how did you deal with that? Massively. Massively. How did you deal with that? Uh, Not well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Not well. It's it's hard. It's really hard. Um, While in the hospital, surprisingly... um, I think you have like a purpose and you have tasks and you're able to, you know, kind of get your head down and do, do your work and, and feel like you're doing something of substance. But then coming home is very difficult. Do you do healthcare workers is there anything, any plans in the works for how to deal with that emotionally, psychologically for healthcare workers? I oh. think I think there's a lot of talk. I think it's very well understood and known that there's um, a lot of this trauma that's being kind of dealt with. And I think um, we know that. And I think a lot of uh, our colleagues in psychiatry have been really great and they've been helping us out and they're offering us a lot of like, webex therapy sessions and debriefings and having like kind of group meetings and stuff um which is great i I think for me at least and i think for most of my colleagues like right now we're okay i think it's more what's going to happen kind of days weeks months and likely years from now that's going to be interesting and i also like I, i worry a lot about like I have colleagues who graduated a few months early from medical school so they could come join the, the ranks with us. And I think it's so traumatic to be an intern to begin with. When you start, you know, when you're your first days as a doctor, it's um, very stressful and difficult. And then having to deal with this whole pandemic as your first kind of soiree into medicine, I think is, you know, could potentially sow some seeds of uh, trauma. Yeah. How about how about actual PPE? How how well protected are are y'all now? We're good. Um, I feel as though I don't think I've ever been without um, you know having actual PPE. Um, my institution has been pretty good. There's three hospitals in my institution, and um, one is a public hospital in New York, which is uh, obviously like less funded than others. But the amount of donations and and people coming out has been just like phenomenal. They've people pouring in either actual money to get PPE or actual PPE and then obviously food. Um, there's like signs and chalk on the street. There's um, like everything you can imagine, free scrubs and all this stuff. So we're being very much showered and pampered, um, which <laughs> is great. And to, <laughs> it feels kind of, I feel kind of shitty in that like there is such a need for food like in the country and there's like a lot of food banks that are going dry and we literally are just inundated with food, like <laughs> really, really good food. And I always feel so bad when I'm like, you know, there's some of this food really needs to be diverted to some of these, these other places that need it. 
at Dr. Natter's behest, we made a donation to Food Bank for New York City in his name. So that's 2,500 more meals will be made possible in the New York area by him mentioning that to us. Thanks for the heads up, Dr. Natter. Now, if up to 80% of folks with it are asymptomatic, how many people have or have been infected with SARS-CoV-2? Dr. Bennett says what we see is probably the tip of an infection iceberg. Do doctors have any idea? Because testing is just so like rare testing in the general population. Do we have any idea what the mortality rate of this is? Um, we have a sense, but I think like you, you, you tapped onto the, the, the way we, we, you know, calculate rates is that you need to have a numerator and a denominator to figure out all of this. And right. the denominator <laughs> is based on if you've tested someone, I think we've caught up a little bit in terms of testing. There's a lot of miscommunication and kind of, um, uh, guidelines that were shifting in terms of who should get tested, when they should get tested, oftentimes to not overload the ER. We would tell people if you have symptoms, but you're not, you know, short of breath or you're not becoming hypoxic to really not come in. Um, mm -hmm. Because we'd have people that would overrun the ED to get tested when they weren't sick enough to necessarily need to be admitted. And then they were basically either exposing themselves in the ED or creating more volume uh, for the emergency room physicians that they couldn't handle. This week, the president of the United States, and I'm just going to quote this in a very neutral informational way, said, quote, by doing all of this testing, we make ourselves look bad because the case numbers go up. Oh, wow. So there is that information. Now, I checked in with Dr. Michael Wells, who we spoke with for the All Washed Hands on Deck episode in late March, and I got an update from him just today, on his database of scientists willing to help with the testing. And he said, quote, the database has now exceeded 9,300 scientists from all 50 states. Side note, yes, Wyoming, you did it. Also DC, Guam, and Puerto Rico. And he now has a large team of coordinators, many of whom found out about the database through Ologies, which is awesome to hear. Way to go, y'all. He says, scientists from our database are helping process tests in Los Angeles, DC and Michigan. We even had a few visit SpaceX in Los Angeles to help with some of their COVID-19 efforts. And we are spending a majority of our time actively seeking additional volunteer opportunities across the country. They have a new website so people can keep updated on their activities. And I will put a link to those in the show notes. Many of you patrons asked about testing, such as Rachel Weiss and Ira Gray and Sophia Dill asked, what is happening with testing and when will we have testing widely available? Sophia, I appreciate your triple interrobang on that question. We really need to uh, broaden the, the testing and the kind of testing, and that's happening. I, you know, it's really we're we're starting to test here in San Francisco. Anybody with with symptoms associated with somebody with any symptoms can get a free test. This is um, a PCR based test, so it's a test that looks for the direct presence of the virus. So it's no point, you know, running off to get tested if you have the virus. Uh, or you thought you had the virus three weeks ago. It's really just measuring the direct presence of virus at the moment that the test, that the sample is drawn. So it has a very short ap applicability. Megan McLean asked about the depth that they plumb into your NAS hole, asking, quote, why does the test swab have to go so far up into your noggin to get results? And that six-inch spelunking, I looked it up, it's hitting the back of the nasopharynx, which is where your sinuses meet the back of your throat, kind of like a taint. 
but for your mouse nose. Will you have to do this twice if this thing mutates? Many of you, including Erica Stairs, Marissa Holtzman, Anna Okrasinski, Maddox, Cameron Seward, Stephanie Enkel, Anna Thompson, Dawn Zwart, and Kevin Leahy wanted to know about strains and mutations. Now, a paper came out just in late April by the Los Alamos National Lab that noted the G strain of the virus is more prevalent in Europe and on the East Coast of the US and speculated that it's a more virulent form. But that paper has not yet been peer-reviewed and many other scientists say there's pretty much only one strain. Coronaviruses apparently mutate at one-tenth of the rate as influenza. And that G strain may have just by chance become more prevalent. It might just be a lucky virus with good odds and not necessarily more dangerous or more infectious. So jury is still very much out on that. Now, if you've had COVID-19, are you immune if it mutates? Even if you do have immunity, when does it start to wane? So are you going to be immune for a couple weeks, a couple months, a couple years, forever? We don't know. And then is this virus, you know, possibly able to mutate. And if it mutates, then maybe your immunity is not going to be useful. And the best example of that is the flu. So the flu is a virus and you have to get a flu vaccine every year because there's something called antigenic drift and antigenic shift. And what that means is that their DNA is very susceptible to mutation. And so you get these tiny little mutations and that's just enough for it to basically kind of evade the um, antibodies from the previous season. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a coronavirus, so maybe it's not the same uh, mechanism. I don't know, um, but no one knows. Now, that being said, if you have antibodies and you get tested positive for these antibodies, that should not mean that you're less vigilant about how you go about your life. Mm-hmm. It might give you a little bit of mental solace, which is good, but you should still wear your mask. You should still be careful. You should still wash your hands. You should still socially distance when you can. All of those things still apply. The other thing I want to say is that the antibody tests... And this is actually very interesting. So the we were so behind on the diagnostic PCR test, the basically do you have COVID or do you not have COVID test? Yeah. Uh, and that was uh, in part because the FDA was so heavily regulating how those tests got rolled out, um, which is what their job is. But in a pandemic, they really kind of uh, put uh, laid the book down and said, like, no, you can't, um, you, you know, medical academic center X, can't make your own diagnostic test, even though you have a lab and you have the utilities to do so because we need to regulate it. Mm. And that was part of the reason why it took so long to get a a wider uh, diagnostic test out there. They went so far on the other end of the spectrum with the antibody test and they went to the free market and said, have at it, do it as much as quickly and as many as you can. And what that spawned was a very large spectrum of reliable antibody tests. And so the same antibody tests from a different manufacturer may not give you the same reliable test, meaning you can get false positives, false negatives. And you can imagine what that would mean if you get a false positive saying, yes, you have antibodies yeah. and people then maybe get a little less vigilant and then, then you're going to have a lot of problems. So a bunch of patrons like Crystal Mendoza, Oda Helene Schatz, Michelle Neer, Gwen Kelly, Marisa Holzman, and first-time question asker John C. Faludi wanted to know about antibody tests and errors in testing. Antibody tests have to be validated to show that they're sensitive enough to pick it up and specific enough to distinguish between this SARS-CoV-2 virus versus other related viruses. And a lot of those validation tests have are still ongoing. It's very, very, very much a work in progress. And in many cases, if those tests are being done by 
commercial labs, there's not uh, always full transparency into the rates of false positive or false negative results. So, you know, there's no point getting a blood sample drawn for a PCR test because it turns out that the virus is mostly in your, um, you know, your mucous membranes in your, in your nasopharyngeal passage and lungs. But an antibody test is actually going to want to look for the antibodies in your bloodstream because it's not, you don't build up a lot of antibodies in your nasopharyngeal. And by the way, the, you don't build up antibodies until at least 10, maybe 15 days you start after the virus is cleared. So uh, it's, it's really challenging or in some cases after the symptoms start. So so when you take the sample and what kind of test and from which tissue type it's taken from and how uh, you know, how much virus you had in your system are all important variables that can change the outcome of the test in an artifactual way. So can you get it twice? Now, a study out of South Korea thought maybe yes, and then they realized that their tests were so good, so sensitive, that they were just detecting old fragments of the first infection. So that is good news. Now, patrons Jen Anathis, Jessica Jansen, Carolyn Wolfram, Patty Bergman, Jenny Hoover, Ellen Skelton, Mike Monikowski, and Zoe Buckley wanted to know, can we get it like a double whammy? If you had it in January and now you are exposed again, we don't think so. Almost all evidence indicates that you cannot get it again because you do develop immunity, uh, some degree of protective immunity. What we don't know is how, uh, how long that protective immunity lasts. So, it, you know, it might be that either the virus uh, evolves away from uh, what you've, your immune system has trained on, or it might be that your own immune response is maybe not that effective. When you get a virus deep into your lungs, there's a really amazing blood viral interaction so that you can develop a really strong immune response to viruses that infect you at that sort of intimate level. But the viruses we get in our nasopharyngeal passages, the common colds, we never really develop anything but very transient immunity because we don't, there's no opportunity to really have that nice viral blood bath interaction to really develop a strong immune response. Let the blood bath begin. So with common colds, we only ever get transient immunity and then the next season, next year, we, we can get the same cold. And so it goes over and over again, year over year. So the big question is, will we develop protective immunity to severe disease, to viral pneumonia, but will this virus then sort of kick up a new quasi-existence as sort of a common cold-like virus where we never really develop a, a protective immunity to, but only transient immunity to more upper respiratory type virus? I asked Dr. Natter about that too. So it's a very good question. The truth is we don't know the answer yet, but we think that if you look at just like what we know in science, medical science, typically speaking, when your immune system gets introduced to an antigen or, or a, a foreign invader, like a virus or a bacterium or something along those lines, um, your immune system, one path of your immune system is to make antibodies in order to fight that off. Your body then has things called memory cells or plasma cells that then essentially turn into these factories of that specific antibody and they just crank them out. And that's how you develop an immunity. 
Marissa Holzman and Emma Fiore wanted to know about herd immunity and, in patron Wayne Hovey's words, how does this herd immunity thing work? So as long as I had a smart virologist on the line, I asked this stupid question for all of us. No such thing. (laughs) Okay, I don't quite understand. When we all come out of isolation, how are we not going to just keep spreading it again? From an epidemiological standpoint, what is going to happen in a couple months when we're all out and about like we used to be? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a really important um, concept. It, it relates back to uh, this concept of herd immunity. Um, and it's, it's recognizing that there's a certain um, proportion of people that we may interact with in our, in our populations that might have had the virus and be immune, so they're no longer susceptible. So what we assume is that, that you know, when the epidemic wave starts to drop, Two things are happening for, for whatever reason, policy wise or, or not, the energy in the wave has bl- bled out because, the, you know, there aren't as many infected spreading the virus to as many susceptibles. And so we can, we can Im- impact that wave by reducing the number of infected, which, you know, we isolate people and, and the, their opportunity to impact susceptibles, to interact with susceptibles. So we're reducing those buckets. But when we all go back out, and we've seen this in, in China, you know, why didn't the, the virus flare back up to, to pre uh, peak of the wave levels? And so, it's, you know, we presume that the virus has basically run out of susceptibles that a certain number of infecteds might run into. So there's like, you know, how many infecteds are circulating? How many susceptibles might they run into? So are there hotspots of transmission, for example? Are there these sort of key sectors in the public domain where people would more likely exchange virus? And, and that's why people are thinking about different scenarios when we all go back out there. You know, maybe we'll be, we'll be getting back up there slowly where we may try to put in place some social distancing mechanisms or, you know, trickle back in so that we can keep that contact rate between infected and susceptibles low. All the while, we try to understand the base herd immunity, like how many people truly were impacted and might be immune. So those susceptibles would be sort of taken out of the equation because they're not susceptible, they're immune. So, you know, we're looking empirically at kind of the way things are rolling in other countries that have seen the end of the wave and have opened back up. They haven't experienced a resurgence, but they're doing a lot of, of things. They, they had a wave, they definitely have some herd immunity, but they're also coupling that with uh, social distancing measures. What if you have had it and want to put your body fluids to good use? Well, according to the Red Cross, people who have fully recovered from COVID-19 have antibodies in their plasma that can attack the virus. And this convalescent plasma is being evaluated as a treatment for patients with serious or immediately life-threatening COVID infections. So it's called convalescent plasma. Patrons Gwen Kelly, Anakin Janiak, and Marissa Holzman wanted to know about it. Is there a way to donate like plasma if you do have antibodies? Does does that even work? So it's a good question. Yes, there is plenty of ways you can do that. Um, I think you have to reach out to your local kind of hospital, your local academic hospital to find out how they're doing it and where to go. 
Um, I know that in New York, for sure, Mount Sinai and NYU are doing that. Um, but the way that works is actually very interesting. So it's not a blood donation as much as it is a plasma donation, or rather a transfusion. And the difference between blood and plasma, um, plasma makes up part of the blood. So the blood is a bunch of cells. It's got white cells and red cells and um, a bunch of other stuff. But also it's plasma. Plasma is kind of like the Gatorade portion. If you mm -hmm. took out all the rest of the stuff, you get this kind of like yellowy fluid. It's mm -hmm. got all the electrolytes and all the good stuff. But in addition to having all that, it has your antibodies. So if you had the coronavirus, you got better, you got tested for, for um, antibodies and you're positive and you're healthy and you're able to donate blood, then you might be someone that could donate your plasma. They then, they do what's called a centrifuge. So they kind of spin it really fast to separate the plasma from the blood. And they take that plasma and they can then give it to someone who's very, very sick who has COVID at that time, theoretically giving them the actual antibodies so their body, isn't, their body hasn't made the antibodies yet. You're giving it to them to get better. We think this might help. Back in the day, they would do this and there was some evidence for it. We're still testing it. So we still don't have the hard evidence, the hard data to say it will. The science suggests that it should. Same idea with if you have tested positive for antibodies and the science says you should have some immunity, we think. Mm -hmm. But until we have the numbers and the objective data, you can't say for sure. And what about the effects on our hearts? And by hearts, I mean brains. I, I just think that there's m there's more of a psychological impact that we we maybe won't understand until, you know, you touched on PTSD. But yeah, I think that there is a certain kind of psychological trauma of being scared of this invisible thing that could kill you mm -hmm. or if you go into the store to go buy soup that you could end up killing seven people by doing it you know you would never mm -hmm. i would never handle a live firearm much less <laughs> just start shooting into an open crowd so it's kind of like you know that that level of fear i think is probably pretty exhausting for people but yeah and, and i think if for, for better or for worse i think people are like becoming less vigilant and anxious and so that's good in some ways i think for mentality but i mm -hmm. think it's also dangerous because as people are letting up obviously there's going to be a lot more you know potential for um, outbreaks and so on so as we mentioned in the first virology episode one of the reasons covid19 spreads so effectively is that unlike sars1 it's transmissible even when you don't have symptoms and a lot of people don't have symptoms. Now, a bunch of patrons like Katya Nizik, Gwen Kelly, Anna Thompson, Jennifer Lowe, Yana Wisniewski, Jillian Klug, Anna Tali, Jamie Pickles, and Marissa Laws wanted to know what we've learned about how it's transmitted. Like, how far can our juicy, infectious droplets travel? And why is it important to wear masks? And why is social distancing so important? You know, originally, we you know, we were kind of assuming, or a lot of people were assuming, you know, this the, the, the pathology of this virus is viral pneumonia. So we, we recognized that it was binding to cells in the respiratory tract at a large scale in the lower respiratory tract, and then, uh, you know, transmitting through uh, viral pneumonia-like symptoms causing disease like viral pneumonia. And those symptoms were like these explosive coughs and sneezes. And so that's bringing droplets from deep into deep you know, deep within your lungs, up and out, and spreading the virus. So what what we've learned since is that this virus also pretty efficiently infects the upper nasopharyngeal passages and tissues. So, it, you know, it is infecting those 
mucous membranes in your nasal passages, for example, even before it gets into your lungs and can potentially infect your lung tissue. And that means that, well, that, that possibly suggests that, you know, maybe the virus could pretty efficiently transmit through the products from our upper nasopharyngeal passage. Like, you know, maybe if you ha you clear your throat or you just have a tickle, like a light cough, or maybe you're breathing very heavily from exercising. And so you'll notice there, there was a change in policy. Like two sources of information came together. One that from the population level perspective, all the estimates of how transmissible this virus was, was pretty high, suggesting that, you know, it's maybe not just people with severe uh, disease products that are, uh, you know, spreading the virus, but rather maybe more people could spread it asymptomatically through breath or light coughs or tickles. And then there was also some laboratory data that showed, especially in hospital settings, when we use equipment like uh, ventilators, we can nebulize the virus into tiny, the tiniest, tiniest droplets. And these are like a millionth of a meter, so point, you know, 0.1 microns. Uh, they can, the virus can float in the air for up to three hours through the tiniest of droplets. Now, when we cough or sneeze, there's a very, very small fraction of droplets that are that tiny. So most of the droplets will fall down. They're bigger. They fall out of the air at that six-foot level. But because there could be a very, very, very small fraction of the tiniest of tiniest particles that could have the virus, that's really why we started, why you could see policy change to have masks, even cloth homemade masks, be worn as a general protective measure. A lot of you asked about masks, like Casey Wright says, masks, what's the real scoop on them? Jessica Craver, Yvonne Bustos, Don Swart, Edgar Valida, Ellen Silva, Sarah Kulig, Deborah N., and Kathleen Ma wanted to know what masks are the best to be wearing. Now, Dr. Bennett told me she wears a homemade, triple-layer, high-quality, high-thread-count cotton fabric mask. It's fitted around her nose with bendable wires, and it's two layers of that high-thread-count cotton with a layer of pantyhose. And now some researchers think a strip of pantyhose, nylon stocking, can also be tied over a fabric mask to help seal the gaps between your face and the mask. Mind the gaps. Let's say you're just using a flappy cowboy bandana. It's better to at least tuck it into your shirt. Now, Dr. Natter wears a respirator used for spray painting, and that filters out, he says, about 99% of particulates, and it has changeable filters. What about if you're going running or biking? Wear a mask? So a mask is protecting both uh, you from shedding virus, and remember, up to, you know, there's a huge variability in, in asymptomatic rates, people that are undetected symptoms, right? So it ranges from, I think, 30 to 85% with an average of 50%. So you might be infected. Mm -hmm. So a mask protects you from shedding virus, uh, not completely, but it blocks big droplets, for example, and it also may uh, protect you from sucking in uh, virus-infected droplets. Mm. So if you're working out, you're going to be breathing more heavily. You're going to be breathing out more heavily and in more heavily. Uh. But, but you know, it's actually really hard to wear a triple-layer mask and work out. So I, I am trying whenever I can to wear a mask. But then as I'm beating along on my hike to the words of the top of the hill, I might have to like whip it off and take a big deep breath mm -hmm. <laughs> and try to get air. And then I try to put it back on. 
but you know the places I'm sheltering in place and I'm I'm staying local and I'm walking up the trails in my neighborhood uh, and there are a lot of people out there so unless I wait until very late in the evening which I'm now doing to sort of not run into people I hesitate to exercise without a mask because I, I just there's so many people you can pass and you can try to socially distance yourself by moving across the street but it's really challenging mm -hmm. so that makes sense i would recommend wearing a mask all the mm -hmm. time listener caitlin mills wanted to know if this will go away in the summer how cyclical will covid19 be so um so in a lot of seasonal viruses you know they're seasonal because humans in the temperate zone are gathering together in classrooms or in inside spaces where the air is recirculated and it's, you know, cool and dry and they're crowded up. And so it, it's probably in many cases host behavior that's driving seasonality in many viral pathogens. But this is a big question that remains to be seen, whether this virus needs that seasonality boost of uh, clustered up humans to kick it back into circulation in the fall. The biggest risk is when you have touched something that has virus on it and then you touch it to your mouth or nose. And so you might imagine like, let's say you get, you, you, you buy a box of Cheerios and you bring it in the house. If you put it away and let's say maybe it has, we call them viral fomites when, you know, somebody deposited a virus particle on the surface of something. It's called a fomite. So let's say there might have been a couple of fomites on the box uh, and you put it in the cupboard. So long as you wash your hands before you prepare food and you wash your hands before you eat, you're going to put in a barrier in between you and, and those fomites and your, your mouth or nose. Um, that said, they're, they're definitely you want to reduce the, you want to put barriers up at every opportunity, right? And, and there have been some studies. There was a lab study that, you know, this is new, new information. We didn't know this at the beginning. We were just inferring how long viruses last on surfaces from what we knew about other viruses. Um, and we, we know this virus is, it, it, it's encapsulated in an envelope, a lipid layer, two membrane layer of lipids. And so it's actually a delicate virus because soap can break that outer layer up and make that virus basically dissolve. And so that's why people are saying, wash your hands with soap. You can wash surfaces with soap. Like, you know, I'm washing my fruits uh, and my vegetables very well, maybe even with a little soap. Okay. So then there was a study that showed that asked the question, if you don't wash with soap or ethanol or isopropanol or, or some disinfectant, how long would the virus last on a surface? Dr. Bennett cited a recent study that seeded SARS-CoV-2 on different materials, including cardboard and stainless steel, copper, plastic, and researchers found that on plastic and stainless steel, it could live up to 72 hours. Now, some types of coronavirus live only a few minutes on cardboard and paper, while others can live for days. We're just not sure. So in some cases, I'm just like getting home, throwing my mail in a bin. I'm going to check it in three days. I'm not in a big rush, right? So so in theory, the, the virus doesn't stick around that long on surfaces because it's kind of delicate, up to 72 hours. And it can be killed by a lot of different kinds of surface disinfectants, including something as simple as just soap and water. And furthermore, if you don't want to be bothered washing every piece of groceries, just make sure you wash your hands uh, before you prepare food and before you eat. 
And don't touch your eyes, nose, and mouth <laughs> before washing your hands, yeah. What about when you're in the grocery store? Deborah Latz has a great question. If I'm wearing a mask and gloves, for instance, in the grocery store, is it safe to be less than six feet away from other people who are also wearing masks and gloves? Or should I wait until the aisle is empty and then grab the butter? Yeah, no, it's a good question. So, you know, in a perfect world, you remain six feet away from everyone. But okay. your risk is in, is much more mitigated when you take the precautions of, you know, wearing a mask um, and the other person's wearing a mask. But you shouldn't feel like you have your invisible cloak of, you know, immunity on the, that you can kind of walk up to anyone when you have a mask on. Um, and I would like to make a point about gloves. I, I, it's impossible, like in, in, in your everyday life, like it's impossible to properly wear masks and gloves. And I, I will say this also. These masks and gloves medically are designed to be single use. So, like, you're meant to wear them into a patient room, have your patient contact, and then what we call doff the PPE and, like, take off the gloves and the mask, and they shouldn't be used ever again because they're contaminated. But in okay. terms of gloves, my point about gloves is that um, people wearing gloves, like, the same kind of risk is there even if you're not wearing gloves, meaning if you take the gloves and touch your face, then you, you've done nothing. The gloves have done nothing for you. Mm -hmm. um, and any surface that that glove were to touch if that, you know, were contaminated, then the gloves are contaminated. And so, what I always say, especially to my parents who wear the gloves, is pretend, wear the gloves, but pretend that the gloves are not on and wash your hands the same as you would. Meaning, you can put Purell on the gloves. Mm -hmm. And okay. so, I try to uh, kind of indoctrinate them to wash their hands even if they have gloves on kind of thing. Okay. Patron Greg Wallach chimed in and said, amen on the glove question. Do people even understand how gloves actually work? He says, I saw a woman eating a donut with her gloved hand. She's keeping herself from getting sticky fingers, I guess. And researchers do report that 100% of those eating donuts get sticky fingers afterward. I am researchers. Actually, what are scientists busy studying right now? Let's get into it. So both Dr. Natter and Dr. Bennett mentioned that the cytokine storms that cause organ shutdown, those tend to be less severe in younger patients than older patients. And comorbidities like lung disease, obesity, and heart disease can contribute to less optimistic prognosis. And those are less common in kids. Now, hospitals are starting to prone patients. This is a practice that Dr. Natter's colleagues affectionately refer to as tummy time because laying on your stomach with an oxygen mask gives the lungs more space and has been shown to be a promising option over intubation. Now, other research is being done with medication. The amount of studies that are currently ongoing, the amount of publications that are coming out, a lot of my colleagues at my institution are like brilliant. And there's a lot of interesting theories, a lot of stuff that's going on. And I, I think we are going to have nailed down um, very soon um, good kind of guidelines and treatments for when to do what. Um, you know, none of this, we don't have treatments like the remdesivir. Now, remdesivir, side note, is an antiviral drug that, according to a paper published April 29th in the journal Lancet, has been shown to reduce hospital stays by about four days, but it hasn't been shown to reduce the risk of death. Still, it's in huge demand, and some hospitals can't even get their hands on it. Dr. Natter explains. There's a lot of talk about remdesivir, which is a great drug, but it's not a cure, and it's not going to necessarily um, uh, reverse course as much as we hope. Um, unfortunately, the other drugs um, that we're getting a lot of hype as well that I've seen anecdotally are doing nothing. Um, the hydroxychloroquine and the azithromycin and zinc. But, but I will say, I am curious to know if those drugs were started very early on in the course before someone was hospitalized, if that would have any effect. Because I think once someone gets hospitalized, what we're seeing 
is less of the viremia and more of the immune destruction um, and like a cytokine storm. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's part of why a lot of these antiviral treatments, if they're not started up front, are not going to have as much of an impact. That's my totally my guess, my theory. I don't know if it's true. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's. Uh, I was talking to the virologist right before this, and she was talking about all of the different publications you can look at and what people are working on and, and how inspiring that is, that there's a lot of people kind of behind the scenes just working on it very diligently. To oh, it's see. amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. And not only behind the scenes, like there are a lot of physician, physician um, scientists who will literally like work with me on a, sh you know, like one of my attendings will be there and we'll be there, you know, on our 12 hours or whatever. And then they'll go home and they'll like basically like type up all this stuff and do all this research <sighs> and like publish. And you know, the next day it's like in JAMA and I'm like, Jesus, like, what, do you not sleep? Oh like, God. what are you doing? <laughs> this is what Dr. Bennett had said. One thing I do for Jollies is I go on to the uh, WHO website. Uh, they actually have a registry of all clinical trials uh, worldwide. You have to register a clinical trial for, for any of these things, whether it's an antiviral or a vaccine or a test or even an epidemiologic um, toolkit that you want to develop. You, you take it into these clinical trials and you have to register them with WHO. And then the NIH, that's our own U.S. National Institutes of Health, also has a registry of clinical trials. And you would be amazed at how many clinical trials are in, in progress. Uh, and it, it, for me, it gives me a great deal of hope. There are hundreds and hundreds of antibody tests, vaccines, and therapies that are currently being tested and examined. And at, uh, at a minimum, Many of these can be used for emergency use, or at least the anti, the therapies. Speaking of vaccines, in Amanda Mueller's words, what is causing the holdup? Kathleen Carlson, Eileen Prince, Will Plewa, Lau, Caitlin Mills, Don Ewald, Betsy Shepard, Adam Drake, Gwen Kelly, and Zoltan Sazi all echoed our universal impatience. And then what about vaccines? Are they taking doctors inside to be like, hey... It's going to be to September or are they like, Hey, <laughs> it's going to be never. <laughs> um, I've heard nothing that the general public has heard, hasn't heard about vaccines. I do think we are going to see a vaccine significantly faster than we would normally. Um, normally a vaccine takes about four years. Ouch. Ouch. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to see a vaccine way sooner than that. And that's partially for a couple of reasons. For one, everyone is uh, in the world is affected by this virus. And so there is a huge impetus um, to get this done. Um, but the other thing is a lot of folks have been working on vaccines for similar things like MERS, like Ebola, like other viruses. And so some folks had a head start. I think particularly in England, they seem like they're doing really well. The other thing is even if you're able to get the right concoction for a vaccine, you obviously need to test efficacy, but you need to test safety first. But then outside of that, you have to manufacture it. So on average, um, like a normal vac vaccine, um, the infrastructure is set up to maybe make, I don't know, five, 10 million doses. You know, we, we need on the order of 300 million in the United States. If it's a single dose vaccine, it might be a double dose, mm. 600 million doses of this. So yeah. the infrastructure, you know, and, and I think Dr. Fauci already started saying this, but like you need to start working on that now before you have the vaccine and you need to kind of convert different factories that could potentially, you know, manufacture the vaccine before the vaccine's even ready to be manufactured. 
So a vaccine, side note, is a weakened form of the virus injected into the bloodstream so that your immune system can suss it out and make a good defense army against it. For more on this, you can listen to the epidemiology episode with guests the doctor's Aaron of this podcast will kill you. Now, in terms of a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, Dr. Bennett says, And in fact, some of the vaccine candidates that are being explored are the SARS-1 uh, vaccine candidates that were just kind of left and never developed. And so it's gotten us a head start. We have a, a good head start on um, vaccine candidates borrowed from other similar uh, related viruses. There are clinical trials happening right now with many vaccine candidates, and that, that definitely means that it's much going to be much shorter than four years out, and I would definitely put it definitely on the sort of the 12 to 18-month track. So, so that's great. So we'll get back to your questions in just a sec, but quick note on donations for this episode. They were made to the Food Bank for New York City in Dr. Mike Natter's name. We also made a donation to the California Academy of Sciences in honor of Dr. Shannon Bennett, who does such amazing work there. Also, this episode, we are shouting out another great podcast with tons of coronavirus info, Science Versus, with the wonderful Wendy Zuckerman. So take a listen to that for some great coverage. Ologies with Allie Ward is sponsored by Squarespace, and Squarespace has been part of my daily life for the last seven and a half years. Ologies might not exist without Squarespace. I had to make a website for this, and I was so intimidated. It took me over a year, and then one night I was like, you know what? I've heard about Squarespace. I'm going to try it, and now look at us. If you don't think you need a website, guess what? You probably do, especially if you're an academic, have some place where all your papers are. People can contact you. Anyway, they have so many tools for entrepreneurs. They have Fluid Engine, which is this kind of next generation website design system. It's from Squarespace. It's drag and drop technology. You can use it on desktop or mobile. They also have an asset library so you can manage all of your files from this central hub and then you can use them across the whole platform. They have professional website templates. They have designs for every category, every use case, no matter what you need a website for. Get a website, start your business. Look, it worked for me. Ding. So head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And then when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash ologies to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. You could do it. You could do it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So is my brain. Here's a thought experiment. Think of all the time that you spend just scrolling on things or not doing the things you want to do. I know time is the most valuable thing that you have. Boy, let me tell you, I had to learn this over time. You know what helped? Therapy. Therapy can help you figure out what matters most to you and how to prioritize it so that you like your life more. And where I learned that was better help. Because yes, I have been a client. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, I know how hard it is to get started. BetterHelp makes it very easy. It's entirely online. It's convenient. It's flexible. You take a quick questionnaire. They match you with a therapist. Instead of just Googling and trying to find someone with an opening, BetterHelp makes it very accessible. And I like that. It's also more affordable than traditional therapy. And you can chat. You can text. You can do video calls. You can do phone calls. For some reason, you are not vibing with your therapist. You can switch at any time. No extra cost. No drama. So let me tell you. Time is precious. Figure out where you want to spend yours. And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. So that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies. It's about time. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success. 
so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. How you doing on that D, that vitamin D? Could be better. I feel ya. Some of us are coming out of a winter. I don't know how much outside time you get. I don't know how your vitamin D is dietarily, but I know a lot of people, including myself, especially women over 18, 97% of us not getting enough vitamin D from our diet. Rituals like, how about I help you? They're a clinically backed multivitamin. So skeptics, here's a multivitamin that's like, yeah, we use science to formulate this. I think you're gonna like it. Ritual multivitamins are vegan. They're gluten and major allergen free. I also like that Ritual is a female founded B Corp. So they're doing good for the health of people and the planet. Ritual multivitamins are also gentle on an empty stomach. I like that when I open mine, they have kind of a minty essence. I've got Ritual vitamins in my belly right now, to be honest. I take them every day. They have kind of a lava lamp look with oil and beads inside. I also have their melatonin caps at night when I need to go bye-bye Z's. So no more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. And get 20% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash ologies. So start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. So that's ritual.com slash ologies for 20% off. Okay, back to your questions. So many people want to know, Kendall Burnell, Emily Dilger, Madeline Dunkel, Tamara Oliver, first-time question asker, Kate Strelhow and Michelle Harvey, Jamie Thornland, and in Dave Miller's words, are we absolutely nuts to have even partial reopening? Are we opening up too soon? Oh, man, this is crazy. I, I imagine what it's like to be like uh, like uh, Governor Cuomo or like some of these folks. Like, they, like no one knows. No one knows. Yeah. I, I am worried because I do think that opening up inevitably will create more potential infection. I, I think if you just look at the, re- like, the reason that the infection rates are down isn't because we've conquered this illness and COVID somehow like went away. Like it's still yeah. very much there. So if you, you know, allow, you know, a city of 6 million to densely populate the subways all over again, like I don't care how many glo- gloves and masks you have on, like there's going to be more transmission of this disease. But it's, it's this balance of, you know, how much longer can you pe- keep people on lockdown? And I think it might be this slow dance where you take a few steps out slowly and you, you know, you track how many infections are, you track the admission rate, you track the ICU admissions, you track the death rate. Um, the death rate will obviously lag behind by a couple of weeks, but you, you track everything you can and you test as much as you can. Um, and then you may have to kind of go a couple steps back. And mm-hmm. wait a little bit and, and, you know, as to not overwhelm the healthcare system and as to keep infections as low as possible. I don't think it's wrong to, to try, um, but I think it has to be done very responsibly and very, very slowly and with a lot, a lot of vigilance and testing and everyone buying in in terms of trying to keep their distance, in terms of trying to, you know, not uh, spit in anyone else's face. <laughs> right. Avoid that for now. <clears throat> it's not recommended. <laughs> Let's get philosophical and ethical about it. But I think, you know, Governor Cuomo, I think, says it really well. And he's like, you're, at, you're essentially asking when you, when you have to open things back up is, um, you know, how much is a human life worth is, yeah. is the way he sees it. And, you know, to him, when you open up, you're going to, people are going to die. And so he, I think, is doing a good job in trying to find resources for people to not have to go back to work, you know, you know, give, you know, something to these individuals so that they can have food and they can, you know, not worry about getting evicted and all these things. And so there's only so much that can be done. Yeah. But uh, I don't, I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? 
How do you feel when you see people in Central Park just picnicking? Yeah, I mean, listen, if, if you can be six feet away from everyone else, um, great. Are you actually six feet away from everyone else? Probably not. And I think this past weekend, I was talking to my friends about it, and it's it, it worries me a little bit. Um, I think it's a harbinger for the inevitable second wave that's going to come after things start opening up. Mm. Um, because I think as things start open up, people are going to get less and less vigilant, really, and more and more kind of um, flagrant about, you know, giving up this whole social distancing and stuff. I am worried and I do unfortunately think that there will be another wave and I just hope that it's nowhere near as bad as what it was. Right. This next question is from patron Annie C who tapped into our collective consciousness and inquired simply, so how fucked are we? I asked Dr. Bennett what we can expect next. It's spring is in the air. We're all getting a little excited and uh, we, we miss each other physically. I'm sensual. Everybody's observing that the, the curves are flattening. I would definitely say that it's definitely too soon to bunch up and we need to stay the course. And so I do, I do cringe when I see people that are clearly not in family groups sort of throwing caution to the wind and, and bunching up. Um, I, I, I understand it, but it definitely is too soon. And, and we need to not do it. We're not ready. We will be ready. There is light at the end of the tunnel, but we shouldn't sort of be racing for the end of the tunnel just yet. Speaking of missing each other physically, Star and Shannon Patterson wanted to know when they can see their parents and their family again. Marissa Laws asked, should we cancel handshakes forever? And Tracy Michael wondered, will we ever be able to hug freely again? I really miss hugs, they say. I would trade out a handshake any day for a hug. Like, I don't think we need handshakes. But I miss hugs, too. And, and my mom lives in Canada. And, I, I, you know, she was supposed to come down and visit for my daughter's birthday. And we, we couldn't make it happen. And it's, it's, uh, we miss our family. I myself struggle with this question, too, is, is, um, is when, when is it um, okay to hug it's about risk, right? It's about thinking about the risk of the person you're hugging to getting a virus from you. And so if that is an older person or an older parent that's not in your immediate family circle, then you, you may be bringing uh, a virus to a vulnerable person. So that, that's one thing for sure. But, you know, everybody needs to be empowered to sort of assess their own risk, right? So it, it might be that, um, you know, if the loved one's that you uh, that are in your family are themselves isolated and they have a very very tiny contact sphere and you yourself has you know have been really strict about containing your contact sphere then you know at some point as we lift shelter in place and we can start to interact physically with each other or move to each other then there's there's probably going to be a way for you to mitigate risk to your older loved ones that you can uh, share hugs but the, the, maybe the proper and official answer, because that's kind of my metric as a person, but, but the official answer really is that unless and until we know, um, what, you know, how many people are immune and what the true, uh, size of the iceberg of this coronavirus population really is, because right now we just see the tip of the iceberg through the limited testing. But once we really understand how you know, how widespread it is and how many people are immune. And then once we build up our toolkit for responding to the infections by like really, you know, really strategic, 
contact tracing and, and social distancing. Um, and then we also have our toolkit to have therapeutics and vaccines. I mean, all of those things sort of would, we would want to come bring them all together to make risk zero, right? Or near zero for a hug. But many of us live with a little bit of risk every day. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Natter mentions the mental health effects as well. This is a really, really stressful time. It's very emotional. People are losing their jobs. Uh, people don't have the same kind of outlets. They don't have the same social, you know, um, support um, because physically they can't. It's hard. It's very scary. And so I think it's important to recognize what your triggers are. It's important to find things that are safe to do during this time, but doing them. Um, seems like people are really liking the baking of bread right now. For some <laughs> um, but, you know, finding something that's going to kind of center you and keep you sane and recognizing that like this is a really scary, really shitty situation, but I'm seeing a lot of amazing generosity and charity and just like humanity through all this, which is mm -hmm. uh, one of the more beautiful things. And like the appreciation that we're seeing and feeling from, you know, for us, the healthcare workers is like tremendous. And I was thinking about how sad I'm going to be because right now every night at 7 p.m. everyone comes out <laughs> and claps and bangs their hands <laughs> and the firefighters come over and I was thinking, I'm going to be so sad when this ends because it hasn't ended. It's been going on for months now. And I was like, the day this stops, I'm going to be really bummed out. And I'm like, maybe like something like this, not, I mean, not necessarily like having everyone come out and cheer for us, but something along the lines of appreciating each other, hopefully gets, you know, salvaged and stays with us. I, I think it will, at least on some level, I think it will. And I'm, and I'm, I'm hopeful that this is all going to come to an end at some point. I don't think it's going to go back to a the same normal that we had. I think there's going to be a new normal, unfortunately. And I think it's kind of like, you know, living through 9-11, I never had to, you know, take my shoes off before getting an airplane. And now that's kind of routine, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think there will be things that are different, but that we will very much adapt to. And that will be, you know, in everyone's best interest in terms of public health. Yeah. I'm glad that the banging on pots of pants doesn't annoy you as a healthcare worker. Oh my God, I love it. Why would it you annoy do? me? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe you're trying to sleep. And then I think, I wonder if there's a nurse out there who's like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> that would actually make a great comic. I should do that. <laughs> um, my mom, who's like the most adorable woman ever, my dad took a video of her on her terrace like with her little pot and pan. And it just, <laughs> just made my day. I looked this up and his mom, Ellen Natter, is an adorable, diminutive blonde woman with stylish, horn-rimmed glasses. She's hipper than me. She's on her midtown Manhattan balcony smacking a saucepan toward the sky in appreciation of healthcare workers and hospital staff who every day are putting their lives on the line, like her son. I don't know how you guys do it. You're amazing. Is there anything, any, anything you would want people to do or take away from this or, or continue doing or not do anything that the rest of us who are just uh, sitting around making sourdough can do for y'all. <laughs> no, keep making sourdough. I think it's, you know, I think we feel it like the healthcare workers, at least I can speak for myself and my colleagues. We feel the love, we feel the appreciation and we really appreciate it. Um, I think please just follow. I mean, I, I imagine the majority of your listenership are people that are very socially conscious. So they're probably already doing this anyway, but just follow the guidelines that are given. I recognize and get frustrated myself when they seem to change minute to minute and they seem to sometimes not make any sense. But if we don't do it all together, then a lot of it's not going to work. And so mm -hmm. socially distancing, I think, is very key. Wearing masks, if, if you're, you know, your local government tells you to, I think is very helpful. Um, 
but just, just being kind to each other and just making sure that, um, you know, we get through this together. I, I should also say, I think it's important to recognize that your neighbors may be elderly and alone and might need some help and, you know, picking up some groceries for them and just, just kind of just being a good human, I think now more than ever is really important. Check in on each other and such. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Dr. Bennett says that in-person relationships are important and maybe we're all realizing that a little more now. What do we mean to each other? All of a sudden, I think we mean a lot more to each other than we thought. So let's not take our friends for granted. Check in with each other, even if it's just to send a picture of a flower or an apricot that looks like a butt. We need those moments. Yeah, and how much we all need other people, whether we're uh, in the U.S. or whether we're a Republican or a Democrat or whether we're, you know, we're Muslim or Jewish or living in China. I mean, we all need other people. So call up old friends or new ones and ask them stupid questions because no question is stupid and we'll get through this together. Now, you can follow Dr. Shannon Bennett and Dr. Mike Natter at the links in the show notes. And I'll also put a link there to alleyward.com slash ologies slash virology too. So you can get more links to the study cited and the Science Versus podcast we mentioned, the organizations receiving donations, the database for scientists and more. We are at ologies on Twitter and Facebook. I'm at alleyward with one L on both. Thank you, Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch of the comedy podcast You Are That for handling merch. Thank you, Aaron Talbert, for adminning the Facebook group, Caleb Patton for bleeping episodes, and Emily White for handling the Ologies transcription efforts. Thank you to everyone who works on those, transcribing them. The bleeped episodes and the full transcripts are available for free on my site at alleyward.com slash ologies extras, link in the show notes. Thank you to Noelle Dilworth for helping me with scheduling and getting all these interviews all lined up. Thank you to Jared Sleeper of MindJam Media for a assistant editing, and of course, the jewel in our corona, Stephen Ray Morris of the podcast, The Percast, and See Jurassic Right for editing these all together and making sure that they go up on time. Nick Thorburn wrote and performed the theme music, and if you make it through the credits without bailing, I tell you a secret. In today, like an hour ago, I made a quesadilla with some corn tortillas that I noticed had a sell-by date of April 2nd. It's over a month ago, but they weren't moldy. And I was like, I'm going to eat them anyway. And then I went to get some cheese and we had some jalapeno cheddar and it was moldy, but I just cut the mold off and I ate the good parts with the expired tortillas. Now it's been an hour. I'm still alive. I'm just at the part of quarantine where I eat garbage like a raccoon. Also, I made a quesadilla for Jared too, but I didn't tell him about the mold. I cut off the cheese or the tortillas. And since he helps me edit, he saw this in my notes as my secret. And I was like, are you mad? He was like, no, just cut the mold off the cheese. Eat it anyway. That's what everyone does. I was like, tight. Okay, bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Stock have too high a price? 
buy a slice. Trade fractional shares of your favorite U.S. stocks and ETFs in any dollar amount you choose with zero commissions online. Get started at fidelity.com slash stocks by the slice. Fractional share quantities can be entered to three decimal places if the value of the order is at least one cent. Dollar-based trades can be entered to two decimal places. Sell orders are subject to an activity assessment fee from one cent to three cents per $1,000 of principal. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC.